mi gente, welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So let's get started. This season of Peruvians of USA is brought to you by Ana Isabel Photography. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture your piece of history? Look no further. Ana Isabel specializes in everything from weddings to family portraits, and she's here to help you show up as your best self in every shot. She knows that having your photo taken can be nerve-wracking, but she is committed to making the experience seamless and stress-free for you. Her goal is to capture your essence in every photo and make you feel comfortable throughout the day. With her expert eye and attention to detail, she will freeze time together with you, creating beautiful images that you can revisit whenever you want to spark a memory. Whether you're looking for stunning wedding photos or timeless family portraits, Anisabel has the skills and expertise to bring your vision to life. So why wait? Contact Anna at anisabelphotography.com today to book your session and start creating memories that will last a lifetime. Welcome to Season 5 of Peruvians of USA. And this season, we'll be meeting Peruvians in various fields, from the arts to the military, and from other corners of the world. I recorded the interviews for this season during my first month of postpartum. Yeah, it was a challenging time, but speaking with our gente always motivates me and helps me gain a new and unique perspective on the topics discussed. As a new mother, things will slow down a little bit around here, but I am committed to continuing this podcast and bringing you informative and thought-provoking interviews. In addition to our interviews, I will also be sharing more of my personal journey to motherhood. I believe that sharing our experiences and stories can be powerful, so I hope my journey will resonate with many of you. So let's get started. Hola, mi gente. The first episode of Season 5 is my conversation with Cindy Suniga Sanchez, the author of Overcoming Debt and Achieving Financial Freedom, Eight Pillars to Build Wealth. Now, Cindy is not Peruvian, but she is a Latina who just published a book on the topic of financial freedom. And I thought it would be a good topic to bring into the community. This conversation happened through the Peruvians of USA book club. And I opened the call to book club members and they had the opportunity to talk to Cindy and ask, ask her their questions. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And I am whispering because my Warita, that is baby in Quechua, is sleeping right now. And as many mothers out there will know, we try not to wake up the baby. All right. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. Before we get started, please note that the information provided in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and it's not intended to be professional financial advice. I am not a licensed financial advisor, and any information shared on this podcast should not be considered as a substitute for personalized advice from a licensed professional. Before making any financial decisions, please consult your own financial advisor. By listening to this podcast, you acknowledge that any reliance on the information provided is solely at your own risk. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to Peruvians of USA, meet the author virtual event. I am your host, Natalie Sofia, and I am on a mission to create opportunities and share resources that promote professional and personal development for our community. Meet the author calls is really my way to give access to our community to authors who share their personal stories and life lessons with us. So we're not starting from scratch. Some of us have already been through a journey and many of us can learn from those that have walk that journey already, right? So I'm super excited that today I'm bringing you Cindy Suniga Sanchez. Cindy is a money coach, speaker, and author of Overcoming Debt, Achieving Financial Freedom, Eight Pillars to Building Wealth. Cindy is also the founder of Zero-Based Budget Coaching, a personal finance educational platform for millennials. Welcome, Cindy. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm super excited. Yeah, so we're excited. And it's April is Financial Literacy Month, and I am passionate about financial literacy. I do think it's a way for our community to flourish in this country. Yeah, so, uh, all right. So first, Cindy, let me thank you for writing this book from a Latina daughter of immigrants perspective. That really touched my heart because, again, not very, not very common out there, right, with yeah. the personal finance oh, yeah. books. And it's when I finished reading this book, I really felt like this is the book I needed when I graduated from college yeah. where I yeah. was navigating this whole financial service system on my own without much guidance. And to be honest, without a lot of trust, because many of yeah. our families who immigrated here come from countries where the financial system was not really some as was not really an institution they could trust. 
right? And so when we come here, then we carry those traumas from our countries. Also, thank you for having very culturally relevant stories, examples, mm-hmm. uh, and advice. I love that. I love the sections like, let's get personal. Yeah, thank I love you. That. So that makes me so happy. <laughs> that makes me so, you have no idea how happy that actually makes me. Like when you're, you know, when you're knee deep writing a book, your hope is that someone will enjoy the words that you're they're reading, right? Because they're your words and they're your stories and they're how they're, you're teaching and how you're telling your story. And your only hope is, you know, gosh, well, like, well, will people resonate with this? Will this click? Will this leave some type of impression on others? And and so yeah, so those words really do mean a lot to me. Absolutely, thank you, thank you. So I was one to start at the beginning. Yeah. And the beginning is really when you created the zero based platform, zero based budget platform and back in 2018. Yeah. And you created this platform to document your journey to becoming debt free. Right. My question is why talk about money? Isn't money the root of all evil? Yeah, yeah. So you know, very prestigious at that question. Yeah, no, it's it's. So I actually love that because you know, um, it's it's really funny how uh, in the Latino community, but also just generally speaking, how people do have this saying of money is the root of all evil. Like that is an actual common you know saying, and 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 I love to first like unpack it just for a second because people say well that's that's you know that's what the bible says right and you know in the latino community overwhelmingly very catholic you know i was born and raised catholic i don't identify as catholic anymore personally um but you know i was i was raised in catholicism and people would often pull that as the, the the part of the bible that says like no 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 we should not you know, um money is you know evil evil but what it actually says is that the loves of money is the root of all evil, right? Not just money generally. And I think that, you know, I always love pointing out that distinction because I think us wanting to achieve financial freedom, us wanting to be, you know, good stewards of our money, right? Like like using our money for, for good, for helping our communities, for managing our own lives, right? Like that's good. You know, we want to be able to have healthy money habits. And as far as your question on, well, like why, right? Like why even inject yourself in this conversation that quite frankly, are people even having? Do people want to have it? And what I found very quickly, girl, is that yes, they do. People want to talk about money. People want to talk about it. People want to learn, right? But the thing is that there's that stigma. Right. That there's that stigma um, that it wins that shame, right? That people carry of, well, that's impolite. No se habla de esto. Right. Like we're not supposed to be talking about that. You don't ask somebody how much money they make. Oh my gosh, that's wildly offensive. You don't share with other people your own salary. You don't share with people how much debt you have. That you are supposed to battle it on your own. And I think that unfortunately. I think that that kind of a narrative that some of us in our community can even trace back to, right? These sort of like even religious roots, if you will, unfortunately, it's kind of gotten misconstrued. Like along the way, something has been, there's a disconnect. And I think that in fact, what our community realizes, no, let's start having these money conversations. We are so much better off that way. And for me personally, I didn't see many people that look like you and I talking about money. And so I said, well, why the heck not? Why not just talk about it myself? I don't know who's going to hear me. I don't know if anyone's going to listen to this. Actually, Natalie, I I, uh, created Zero Based Budget anonymously at first. Like it was totally an anonymous page. You know, um, I was really embarrassed by it, actually, um, because I was like, oh, my gosh, like, could you imagine if like my friend's see this and they're like what is Cindy doing you know but look I decided to document my journey of paying $200,000 of law school debt because for me it was important to share how I was figuring it out you know what was I learning what were the lessons along the way what were the strategies that I was using like real information you know so yes one part of it was like kind of like my that free diary sort of, if you will. Mm-hmm. But the other part of it was, let me actually share what I'm learning with my community as well. Yeah. And I think that's 
one of the key pieces like that you know in the latin culture we're kind of told not to talk about money money is like very you know i've been told like no seas ambiciosa that's a bad yeah. thing yeah 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 you know? uh, but i i but i seen women who are ambiciosas do so much for their community mm-hmm. i'm like if that's gonna take if that's what it takes for us yeah. to be able to contribute back to our community to be ambitious yeah. i'm like yeah girl go be ambitious sign me up sign me right up <laughs> <laughs> right so and like and i think it was melinda gates who who said you know like when you give women money they invested yeah. back in their communities. They invested back in their families. So yeah. I think I just want to kind of just conclude all of this conversation about money being the rule evil because it's not. It's the love yeah. of money, as you mentioned. Absolutely. And in your book, you're very clear about money is a tool. Money is yeah. a tool that allows you yeah. to move your life forward, that yes. allows you to give back to your community. And, and, it's, and it impacts everybody. It impacts right. everybody and it impacts everything in your life. So Absolutely. might as well learn how to be successful in this area of life. So, yeah, it's like, it's like why we go to school, right? We go to school to learn subjects like English and social studies and math and science, right? Why do we learn those subjects? Because it's part of being a well-rounded human. But why don't we learn about the subject that touches every single thing that, that our lives touch? Clothes, food, shelter, every our jobs, our careers, our, our passion projects, absolutely everything that we do in life that we touch in some way is affected by money. So why is that the topic that we don't want to learn about? Right? It's, it's kind of ironic when you think right. about it. Right. Yeah. Now, all right. So my next question is kind of diving a little bit into your money story. You mentioned you paid off over 200K. Uh, 200k and, and student loans and 48 months to be exact so that and yeah. then the second amount was $215,000 yeah. in student li- and student loans I know if they're student loans but like overall how was that just student loans was there any consumerist consumer yeah. loan in that and then also how did you manage to pay that in 48 months yeah yeah so that actually did consist of about 12 to 13 thousand dollars of credit card debt and most of that credit card debt was honestly debt that I had just been like stuck in since college. You know, since I, I got my first credit card, I share in the book, um, I got my first credit card in uh, in high school back when that was allowed. Like credit card companies were allowed to promote their products and services uh, on college and high school, even campuses. Now those practices are very, very restricted, but we're talking about like 16 years ago, right? Uh, So I signed up for my first credit card because I thought, yeah, this is what you have to do as an adult, right? But unfortunately, I had absolutely no education on how to manage and use credit cards. And so I just went very swipe happy, right? I got to college and, you know, what did we do on the weekend? We would go to the mall. We would go to Applebee's, right? You know, and and we'd go to the movies and I didn't have too, too much money. I had an on-campus job, but it was basically like, this was a cycle that I was stuck in. I would swipe my card for absolutely everything. And then I would wait eagerly for payday. And then I would pay off my cards with my paycheck, right? Like that was just a cycle that I was stuck in. And I carried those habits into law school, but in law school, it was even worse for me because in, you know, I went to Stony Brook University, which is a public university here in New York. Uh, But then in law school, I went to a private law school with uh, many of my peers that were, let's just say, very, very financially privileged. And I came to a very stark realization of, of class right? Like, you know, what being upper, middle, lower class actually looks like. Like my whole life, I feel like, I don't know, what kind of like lower, but like not like that low, right? And then I look at my peers that literally have like, they live in like mansions or apartments that their parents are paying for them in New York City. And I was like, maybe I'm not so close to them as I think I am in terms of like on the privilege scale. And so uh, for me, unfortunately, yes, uh, when I graduated law school in 2018, about $202,000 was student loans and about $13,000 was credit card debt. And as for how I managed to pay it all off, right, because that's like the burning question that everyone has, uh, you know, I, I, I say it first and foremost, because I'm very candid about this. I graduated law school at the top 10, 10% of my law school class, and I got a really great job as a commercial litigation attorney at a national law firm in New York City. 
So what does that all mean? Financial privilege, right? Like, like I went from not having much at all to stepping into a six-figure salary, right? Which is something that like I had never seen, no one in my family had ever seen, right? Up until that point. And so for me, uh, the challenge was really trying to figure out how to manage that salary because no one had ever taught me about money or money management. So I was like, I don't know how to manage a six-figure salary. And so for me, the two big things that actually helped me, um, you know, make progress on my debt was one, budgeting, like being super, super mindful of what is coming in, what is going out, where is my money going, right? Like I've always been the type that, you know, if you, if I think about last year, for example, I'll be like, oh, I don't know where all my money went. Like, yeah, I had this on-campus job or this part-time job or a summer job, but I don't know where any of that money went. And for the first time in my life, I was being super mindful of where that money was going. I was also pretty frugal in some areas of my life, especially the most expensive areas that typically affect people. Like when I lived in a uh, studio apartment in Harlem, my rent was super cheap for New York City. It was $1,100 at the time. Um, food, I did not really eat out much. I always, always meal prep, brought my lunch to work. I talk about that in the book too. Um, and another thing is I did it by a car. I had my Metro card. The subway here in New York City is 24-7, even though after a certain time, it gets a little shady. But I was, I, I tried to be as resourceful as I possibly could, truly, you know? And for me, that was because I wanted to be very aggressive with my debt. Um, So one part of it was honestly really mastering money management skills and budgeting. Um, but the other piece of it also like on a practical tip that, you know, maybe it could benefit someone listening to this is I refinanced my student loans. And for me personally, it made absolute sense to refinance my student loans because there was no way I was going to qualify for any type of loan forgiveness, right? Like I was working in the private sector, making a six-figure income, um, and for me, uh, my my average interest rates on my student loans were about eight, eight and a half percent. Now, on hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, that percentage is awful. OK, and so for me, refinancing actually cut my interest rate in about half. So my interest rate was about I think it was like four point two five or something. And that move alone, not only that saved me about forty thousand dollars in interest. Um, from, you know, repaying. And so that was a big, big strategy that I implemented. So yeah, I would say, of course, yes, income and having that super important. And I never try to shy away from it. Um, and so throwing things like my bonuses, a tax refunds, like literally anything I could, I kept my lifestyle the same as like, like, I mean, sure, I upgraded some things, but I was in my mind, I was still living like a broke law student, you know, because I was really trying to be aggressive with my debt. Um, so, yeah, so those are a few things, you know, uh, but I think that the big picture that, you know, um, someone listening to this, that, you know, whether or not you make six figures that you can hopefully implement is is one throwing any possible additional sources of income the way that I do it, like bonuses or whatever to your debt. Right. Because that's going to allow you to tackle it a lot faster. Um, specifically, if you're paying an installment loan, like a student loan, you want to target that additional payment to the principal. OK, that's a big tip there. You want to target it to the principal. Another thing is being super mindful of your money management, a.k.a. your budget. And then the other thing, uh, I, the third thing I would say probably is um, definitely look into refinancing, but do your research on it, right? Because refinancing does come with its cons with, for example, uh, you know, you wouldn't qualify for any like federal student loan forgiveness programs if you move your debt out of the federal government and into a private lender. So there's a lot to consider there. And I, you know, I talk about that at, at length in the book when we talk all about like student loans and debt management and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a, that's a, my long-winded answer of, you know, how I managed to stay off my debt. Yeah. I, and I want to highlight a couple of things. You mentioned like the, the, the three big expenses are right. Like I want to reiterate for those listening to us, like rent housing, food and transportation and that's usually talked about and like the circles of personal finance those are the top to be and so if you can figure out a way to reduce your costs there whether it's absolutely if you're able to have a roommate maybe have a roommate but if that's not something that you're able to do maybe think about food and how to cut costs there 
transportation, like in the DC area, it's a very, it's a place where you drive everywhere. Like, it's almost like you have to have a car, you know? And so again, like when I think about this, I almost feel like I'm living in the wrong city. Because <laughs> that's a thing, right? Like for some people, some things are going to work out yeah. and some it's not going to apply, right? Like yeah. there are people that live in way less expensive areas of the country, right? Like being in New York City, it's the most expensive area, right? Well, you know, San Francisco, maybe, right? But like New York City is insane, wildly expensive. Right. But you know what's interesting is that I feel like a lot of times what we forget are all the lower income people that live in New York City. We have such a strong immigrant community in New York City, right? So it's like, well, how do people live in New York City? And Look, it's not glamorous, right? I'm not going to pretend that it is. It's not. But like sometimes we, roommates are super common. Trying to look for rent stabilized units, which is a big thing here here in New York City, right? Like sometimes you do have to get a little bit creative. And for me personally, I was like, I am not moving from the studio apartment. This is this is good enough for me, you know. I didn't move into like a fancy high rise or anything like that. No. Um, and then after I moved out of my studio, I moved into uh, an apartment with my then boyfriend, now husband, mm-hmm. where we shared where we basically split the rent for a one bedroom, you know. And so there was obviously another way uh, to save money and manage my housing costs as yeah. well. Yeah, and then also the other item I wanted to highlight was making sure that when you're paying your student loans, it goes to the principal. Yes. And I know when I had my student loans, unless I specifically said I want this to go to the principal, Uh whoever's managing the loan will make it go to the interest. And so then my principal is never going down. And the principal is the amount that you originally borrow. And that's the amount that you want to go down because that's what you know, that's why we'll make your interest go up or down. Like, you know, and so yeah. hopefully yeah, that makes yeah. sense to folks. But like, if anybody has student loans out there that are they're trying to manage, I just want to highlight that because that is a very key, key point. So yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. So, and I, and I appreciate it on the book that you're very transparent about like, hey, like part of the reason I was able to do this in 48 months because I do make a good salary. Like yeah. there, there is that at privilege, right? Uh, but many of us first gens who, you know, go through the full experience of going to college, making that six figure afterwards, I think it, it, there is that also pressure now that we mm-hmm. contribute back to our family. Like there's mm-hmm. that pressure mm-hmm. of like, now you got to help mom and dad, you got to help the sister, yep. you got to help the brothers, the nephews, the nieces back in your country. Everyone. And so <laughs> it's almost as like we are not allowed to. Like, can, can we build a foundation first, you know? And I think that's something I struggle so much with, but I did not allow myself to build that foundation first before I was able to like send back, right? What I, what I could, can you, did you experience that pressure? Oh, I still do it every day. Yeah. Every day. And it's, it's hard, you know? So for, um, it's really interesting because I, I think about this a lot too, when it comes to even the differences between me and my husband. So my husband is half African-American, half Puerto Rican, and he, you know, his, his mother was born here in the United States. So he has a very, very different path and upbringing than I did, right? Where my parents are immigrants and they came to this country with nothing, right? And so um, also I had two siblings, you know, he's an only child. And so I, 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 I share all that because it's, I always thought it was just, second nature and almost normal right to give money not just to your family here right and i talk about that in the book right i talk about in the book that with you know first gen kids our family is not just a family that's here it's our family back home too and by home i mean where our parents were born and so for me you know being um from ecuador and honduras what that looked like just as an example that I will share a personal um, anecdote was during the COVID pandemic, the height of the COVID pandemic. You know, back in 2020, um, not just family members here in the United States that were being affected financially, but globally people were being affected. You know, and in Ecuador and Honduras, people were, my cousins were losing jobs, you know, and over there, there are not they don't have the social safety nets that we have in this country. Look, I understand like just generally speaking, Americans, we complain about a lot about the lack of social safety net, right? We compare ourselves to countries like in Europe. In Europe, yeah. 
Right. All, all the time. And, and, and I am very critical of this too, right? Absolutely. We need to do so much more for our, um, for, for, for our people here. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, other countries have it so much worse, right? And sometimes we're blinded by our own shortcomings here in this country that we fail to realize the very real struggles. Like we're talking about not being able to put food on the table kind of struggle, not being able to afford a trip to the doctor that could cost you your life struggle, right? That is very real. And so for me, you know, during the pandemic, um, when, when, you know, job cuts were happening and this and that, you know, um, uh, three years ago now, I, yeah, I had to send back money to, you know, some family in both Ecuador and Honduras because, they like you know what I mean. It's like it, over there, it's not like about luxuries right now. It's just like survival. It's, it's survival. Yeah, and then quite frankly, you can't turn your back on your family because sometimes also, and and please feel free to let me know if you've ever experienced this. There's also guilt sometimes, right? Of like I get to be here, and 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 so this is almost a privilege. It's almost an honor to be able to give back, and so yeah. you do it. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, it's a fine line between honor and burden. And I'm just going to be blunt about it. There's a fine line. I, yeah, I feel that. And, I feel it. Yep. And, and I definitely agree. And just to give, just to kind of tie a little bit with that Peruvian experience, I know in Peru, the government tried to give some sort of like bonus, similar to like the stipend we were getting here yeah, in yeah, the yeah. US. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the majority of Peruvians did not have bank accounts. So how do you distribute that? You know, and, and so there's are just like, situations that fortunately CRI are better and yeah. similar to your point like we could do a lot more we can do better than we're doing now but uh, Latin America still has a lot of room to grow in that area so yeah thank you for sharing your experience yeah yeah of course these are tough conversations to have but you know I try to be I try to be honest about them because Others go through it too, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, I, like I'll share just randomly another story, you know, where, um, and this is, again, this is not to complain, but I know that you understand where I'm coming from. Right. Um, I got like, I, I got a bonus at work and I was super excited, right. To like, you know, like, oh yeah, we're not going to be able to treat myself. Right. Um, but some renovations needed to happen at my grandma's house. And it's not that they were like, oh, let's just make it prettier. No, no. It was like structural, right? Like structural, like we needed to do it. And, um, you know, so that's where the money went instead. And, and again, yes, like, like you said, totally, you know, honored and proud that you can give to your family in that way. But also um, there is a little bit of that kind of, you know, when is it my shot? Like, when do I get, do I get to be selfish in this? And I think those are the tough questions that, you know, we do have to, to ask and the conversations that we do have to have. So I do want to thank you for providing this space to even talk about this, um, because I think that like, you know, media, like national broad media can easily misquote something right. like that. Right. right. But amongst us, I think we get it. Yeah. And I think for me, the approach I've taken is, you know, I, I do have to look at my financial foundation that it's stable. And then it's kind of like the cup runneth over, right? And so if my foundation is solid, then yes, I allocate yes. funds. I put it in my budget, similar to what you say in the book, I put it in my budget, that what funds are going to go to family and Peru. And that's what I'm comfortable with. I don't think about it. And I don't expect it back either, right? Like sometimes family say, can I borrow? And I'm like, you know, yes, so. Yeah. All right. So the other question I had about the book, the book touches on money being emotional, right? Money is emotional. <laughs> and there are a lot of emotions we go through as we are in this journey to debt freedom, to achieving yeah. financial, financial independence, financial freedom. What emotions have you, have you gone through in this journey of debt freedom and now into like achieving financial freedom and how, what strategies do you use to kind of like center yourself again? Because, you know, it could be a roller coaster. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it, and it's a struggle. It is a struggle and I, I'm more than happy to share. So the struggle when I was becoming debt-free was having the momentum 
right? Like being optimistic, feeling like, yes, I can do this. And there, there will come an end point, right? Like keeping that goal in mind is really, really difficult, right? Especially when you are looking at a mountain of debt. Like just picture this. Picture you get a student loan statement and it says your balance is $186,000. And let's just say that you get a nice little bonus for $6,000. And let's say you throw the whole thing, the whole thing. And then you get a next statement that because of interest, due to interest, your balance is now, let's say, $182,000. So let's say maybe you went down by $4,000. This is just an example, right? That can be so frustrating yeah and and so um just paralyzing sort of and I think that for me what I really needed to keep in mind was my why right like why am I doing all of this what's the point of trying to achieve financial freedom and for me it's always been and it will always be my family right being able to be there for my family be there for my parents be there for my sisters for my niece my nephew is of the utmost priority for me um but also rewarding myself along the way so when i would hit my certain milestones in my debt free journey and i encourage you to do that as well anyone listening to this is set milestones for yourself like maybe every 5000 or 10000 dollars that you pay depending on your amount of debt you know you will treat yourself to uh, you know, a dinner at your favorite restaurant or to a mani pedi or whatever it is, right? Maybe something that you're, you don't normally do because you're kind of on this journey. Treat yourself to something that you value and that you care about. Otherwise, you will start to resent your journey and you will burn out. And that is very unhealthy, right? So, so do the best you can to keep that balance. Um, in terms of now, right, where there has been a degree of financial freedom achieved. And what I mean by that, what I share in the book is that financial freedom isn't necessarily a specific number, right? It's not like, oh, I hit this specific dollar amount in my bank account. It can be if that's what you want it to be, right? If that's your definition, fine. But for me, what it really is, is when you start perceiving money different, when money now becomes this tool that allows you to become more of what you want to be in the world, rather than this burden that just thinking about it gives you like a stomach ache, right? And so now that I was able to leave my multiple six-figure paying job as an attorney and transition into entrepreneurship and take basically, basically a whole year off from really receiving the revenue that I would have received otherwise because I was writing a book. Because yes, candid moment here, all right? When you are writing a book, Unless you are a celebrity, unless you are Miss Michelle Obama herself that is securing a super fat advance, you will probably not have enough to make it past a few months. I'm going to just keep it real with you, okay? And so that, that's uncomfortable, right? And so part of the struggle, even while I was writing the book, which is funny enough, right? Because I'm over here writing the book and then I'm over here like, I, I'm so grateful that I set aside this chunk of money um, that I called my sabbatical fund because, you know, some people, when they, when they take a sabbatical, typically sabbaticals are in the nature of academia. So a professor will take, let's say, a year-long sabbatical. The university will pay him or her to take the sabbatical and they'll go and write, right? They'll go write a masterpiece kind of thing and, and they'll have something uh, to sustain them for the year, right? I I did that for myself. <laughs> like, like I, you know, I set aside money so that I can provide for myself basically during this year of intense writing and editing and publishing a book. And um, there was a lot of discomfort. I'm going to be very honest with you. There were a lot of months where I was like, you know, I still had my business, of course, and my business was bringing something in, but it wasn't bringing a lot. It was not bringing a lot. And and that was very uncomfortable and it was difficult to deal with. So how did I deal with that? I had to keep my eye again on the goal, but I also had to rely on the fact that, Cindy, even if this doesn't work out for whatever reason, even if the book doesn't work out, entrepreneurship doesn't work out, whatever it is, you still have your degree. You're still a licensed attorney. You can just go find a job. Yeah. Right. And I think a lot of times we psych ourselves out from pursuing certain passions or certain projects because we think that the job market will not have one opportunity for us. But we are educated 
we are capable, we are smart. And if you are a first gen or an immigrant yourself, then I know you are hard working and you are driven. So you use that fire and you use that fuel to get you to your next opportunity. But the, 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 the opposite would be you say no to your dream and you saying yes to the comfort zone that you're in and never daring to take certain opportunities. You know, and so for me, that's kind of what I had to balance. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and say that all oh, my money woes have gone away. No, right? Like I'm still human. But I have come to a point where I am able to manage things much, much better than I used to. Yeah. And I think what I love about your message is that degree of financial freedom, because so much in the circles of personal finance and fire community, which stands for financial independence, retire early, they talk about like, being not not having to work and sometimes that's really yeah. hard, that's really hard to spot for many of us because we're yeah. like what do you mean but what i love about your message and the book is that it doesn't have to be a number it doesn't have to mean you don't you don't ever work and you just go sit on a beach right it could if you wanted to yeah. and there are degrees and there are levels of freedoms that you can achieve if you have your foundation like and so yes. And I think that's key because I don't want to discourage anybody. I don't want them to feel like this is not a message for me because it is. Everybody deserves yeah. a level of financial freedom. And I, I want that for everybody in our community, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we deserve it. We really do. You know, it's something that, that that's like one of the few truths that I will say, even people that are like, oh, but Cindy, like, you know, right now my situation, I'm like, yes, but you know, you make the smallest steps. You take the smallest steps. You know, um, it, it's really funny. I actually have a friend in the personal finance community. She's an investing expert. Her name is Delianne and um, Delianne, the money coach is her handle. And she talks a lot about retiring. And um, it's really funny, she, but she focuses on a lot on, um, and I actually appreciate, uh, you know, when people will say, they'll, they'll do the pushback of like, oh, but like, I'm not going to be able to retire in my 40s or even in my 50s. And she says, but what if you could go from a 40-hour work week to a 20-hour work week? What, what about that? Would that improve your life? Okay, maybe you can't retire a multimillionaire, but what kind of impact would half a million have on your retirement? Right. It's a lot better than nothing, right? So, so why don't we work little by little to as much as we reasonably can? And I, I really appreciate her message and that perspective because even if um, the three million, two million dollar goal isn't in your scope. Um, well, what is right? And what kind of impact could that maybe have on just your overall well-being? You know, even if you could have enough invested so that it covers, you know, your let's just say like your mortgage, right? And, and then what you have to work for is really like in terms of active income is enough to you know feed yourself, clothe yourself, and transportation. Right. Like if you could handle one big expense. Right. I think it's all about perspective, you know, and doing the best that you possibly can yeah. with the information and the resources that you have. Yeah. And I think the other part of her message, too, I do follow the Leanne as well, yeah. is that um, you don't have financial freedom or whatever degree of financial freedom does not have to wait until like the end point of your lifeline. Yeah. Your time you can experience financial freedom in short spurts or in short yes. times throughout your throughout your life and yes. one of the things i did several years ago my company my former company had a leave of absence that you could take three months it was unpaid and so i managed to save enough and i applied for this leave of absence for three months and i decided to travel around and so awesome. even though even though at that moment i was not financially free from like that yeah. you know very standard definition of like yeah. i never had to work but I had save enough to be able to take this leave of absence for three months and go travel. So there I got to experience it in my 20s, right? I got to experience yep. it in my 20s a little bit. And so like, I don't want us to wait until we're yes. like at the end of our lines or whatever to like experience all the, you, all the things that life can bring you. So, and I think yes. your message and Delianne's message, it's kind of like, hey guys, don't wait. Like you can- and As much as we can, we gotta just go for it. Look, I'm sure that experience in your 20s greatly enriched your life, Yeah, right? I'm sure you still think about it and there's still lessons that you learned and people that you met and experiences mm -hmm. that you had. 
And I think that we should have that too, right? Like we don't have to wait until this end point. And, and I actually always say, um, you know, it's, it's actually a little, I think, um, sort of entitled of us to even dare to think that tomorrow is promised to us. Yeah. Right. So I'm not saying YOLO, right? I'm not saying ball out and blow everything today. Right. But what I am saying is do make sure that you are living for today and not just for tomorrow. Yeah, I agree with that. In your book, you also acknowledge the systemic issues and racial inequalities in the financial service system. Uh, why was that important to include in your book? Because I don't know that I've ever read about it. Right. You know, I don't know that I've ever read about it in a traditional personal finance book. And I think that for me, this book wasn't just about compiling my best tips and, you know, and, and sharing about me and my story. It was about really addressing the hurdles that we face. And by we, I mean, um, you know, uh, children of immigrants, people of color, women that we face that the traditional financial services industry has been okay to ignore, right? Like since really the inception of our country, you know, and if you think about the inception of our country, like who was it that had a wealth? It was, it was white men with property. That was who had the wealth and, um, and who has the wealth now also largely white men with property, right? So how do we start to really chip away at that? We need to address the very, very real systemic issues that are, that are very prevalent in our system. And also what that has done, you know, to unfortunately hinder communities of color from even being able to build well. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that. You know, I even talk about, you know, um, even though I, I, I mean, because I could write a whole book on just this topic, right? Specifically the issues that racism has on on um has had on wealth building but you know i touch on everything from you know the the gi bill that wasn't properly issued to you know black americans and and was was very much issued to you know their white counterparts that were able to buy homes and accelerate their their family's financial well-being and the fact that people today are benefiting from that from decades ago yeah. They get to benefit from that because they got to grow up in a home, right? In a house. And there's a house or maybe a couple in their family. Maybe they were able to get some type of an inheritance from grandma, grandpa. Maybe they were able to get some help with their wedding, some help with their first, you know, their down payment or whatever, right? And so like the lasting effects that racism has had on wealth building is something that we cannot ignore and we should not ignore. And I hope that people that read my book, not just first gen or those of communities of color, but even the white guy that's, you know, just stopping by the bookstore and is like, you know what? I want to learn from a different voice too. I hope that this book touches them as well, mm -hmm. because it's important that we learn from each other. Yeah. I mean, heck, if I, you know, years ago when I went to the bookstore, like li literally 90% of the books were by white men. And I read those books because that's what was available to me, yeah. right? So if I had to, you know, kind of deal with that, I think we can, we can make room in our lives to, you know, learn from diverse voices. And for me, that's why I, I wrote the book the way that I did. And I included the types of stories that I did and also the types of facts, including historical information that might be a little painful to read, um, you know, in, in the text, because I, I wanted us to just be very mindful of these issues. And the fact that, again, like what we said earlier, right, like money does touch on everything. And money is such a, a, a big topic to work through that is emotional, that is, you know, all the things. Um, but I think that when we become just that much more knowledgeable, we know more about, so this is how the world works. Um, how am I going to use that information then, right? Like, what, what do I make of that? And then you kind of go, just go from there little by little. You know, I talk about in the book as well, how I, you know, opened investment accounts for my niece and nephew, right? That is my small way of starting this whole generational wealth building mm -hmm with me, right? Because just how other Americans were able to start that decades ago, right? 
heck, if it has to start with me, it starts with me. But it did is it's not starting with me. It's really starting with my parents, right? Because my parents are the ones that were brave enough to come to this country with nothing. So, you know, my I, I like to say my parents really laid the foundation, right? The concrete was poured. That foundation was built so that then me and my sisters can kind of go ahead and 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 put the 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 structure, put the framing around so that again then the next generation can can you know build from there um that's our hope i think yeah 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 and and as you address those systemic issues in the book i i also appreciated the tone because i know sometimes we can get stuck in this tone of like um it's the issues are so big and insurmountable that i can't do anything about it and therefore i'm just gonna sit so the way you yeah. you addressed it was like, yes, this is a very real issue. This is a historical issue. It's happened from it's it's been happening forever, but there are things we can do, right? Let's not just sit and be hopeless. There are things we can do. And so I I love that combination of like, yes, let's hold these institutions responsible, but there's things we still can do. And so I think anybody listening, in, like if you haven't gotten to that part, when yeah. Sydney talks about the GI Bell, like definitely very interesting as she gives different stats about it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we have to have hope, right? Like, like, not all hope is lost. Like, I think that, yeah, like, we should absolutely acknowledge on very real issues that have happened and are happening now. But to just, you know, accept defeat, that that's not it either, right? Um, I think that instead, you know, educating ourselves as much as we can so that we can move forward, that's, I think, a much better use of our time than just kind of accepting things as they are and saying, you know what, that's it. I can't do anything about this. Yeah. So in your book, you include the five reasons why folks don't invest. And I've heard all of them. I experienced all of them. Why is it important for our community to invest? And why is it so scary to invest? Yeah, so um, I'll start with why it's scary. So investing is scary because we don't get it, right? Quite frankly, it's a, it's a foreign concept that we really think about it. You see, investing in the traditional sense, the way that I talk about it in the book is um, investing like in the stock market, right? Mm-hmm. So investing in essentially pieces of companies that are increasing, hopefully, in value and thus our investment, our portion will also increase in value netting profits plus, right? Like that's kind of the goal with investing. Um, but that's that's not like common in our community, right? Like our parents, for example, they view an investment, if any, is going to be like a house, right? Like something tangible. And that's because of even just how in, for example, in Ecuador and Honduras, that's how it is, right? Like to have terreno, una casa, una hacienda, like to have farms, houses, property, that is having wealth. Not like investing or putting your money in to say, you know, goodbye, let's see what happens over there, right? And so I think that, you know, we're hesitant, one, because of this kind of more like this context, right, of, of this unfamiliarity with it all. But I think also it's because we have, unfortunately, um, we've traditionally been ignored from the conversation of why it's important to invest. You know, it's kind of like, sadly, it's, it's perceived as, well, you know, communities of color, they don't really need this information, um, but we do. And so why it's important important for us to invest, right? I understand the hesitation and it's warranted. I get it, right? Um, But we need to focus on also why it's important for us to invest. A big part is because our financial futures really count on what we're doing today. You know, so the, the small bits that we can act on today is what our future selves will thank us for. You see, Historically, and I also share in the book, historically, um, people had thought of systems like, for example, Social Security as their financial safety net for when they retire. But that's not going to cut, right? Like it might be able to subsidize a portion of your retirement. But yeah, but like how else, if even, but how else are you going to supplement your lifestyle? If you don't have generational wealth, like if you don't have an inheritance, like girl, it's up to you, right? Like, like, like it's up to us. We really need to do that. And I know that sounds a little scary, right? Like, oh my gosh, Cindy, I don't know where to start, but like, 
how do I even like just get past being in my own head, right? Because be like even thinking about investing can kind of freeze us. And I would invite you to first and foremost look at retirement right so like for example maybe with your employer you have access to a 401k a 403b a 457b maybe you don't have access to that maybe you have access instead to like an individual retirement account like an ira or a Roth ira the reason why i would invite you to first look into those options is because of the tax advantages first and foremost right there's a lot of tax advantages that lower your tax liability aka lower the amount that you'll have to like pay the federal government in taxes right um, because the government wants to incentivize you to put your money in this in these investment vehicles, right? So that's one big pro is, oh, wow, like I can take advantage of tax benefits, which is great. Um, but the other obvious benefit is by starting as soon as possible, starting early, that will allow your, your money time to grow. And with investing for the long term, time is your best friend. Investing when you're 25 is better than starting to invest when you're 35 and starting to invest when you're 35 is better than starting to invest when you're 40 and so on and so forth, right? So today is really the best time to be able to do that. And I would definitely encourage you to first and foremost, look into investing through retirement accounts first, and then you can look at all the other stuff, but don't think that investing is like stock picking, right? Because it's not. I used to think it is. I, it was, right? I used to think like, oh, I can't get into the stock market until I know exactly which companies I should invest in. And then I learned about something called index funds and ETFs and these basically these um, opportunities for you to invest in kind of like a basket of companies instead of just like one specific company and all of a sudden investing became just that much easier and just more manageable I think yeah yeah and I think I know what I started I started to invest way late too because I was overwhelmed about it like how do I pick the next Apple Amazon Google why yeah. I, I don't know I don't understand their business um I don't understand all these you know tools and then they talk about uh, asset allocation and it was all complex and then yeah, somebody, oh I think, I think <laughs> somebody, somebody was like, Natalie, have you, do you know about target funds and target funds? And for those in the cloud that may not know, it's, it's really like index fund, what Cindy mentioned, but it, it goes to, it allocates, it shifts your assets, whether it's a stock or a bond based on the retirement date you choose. So if you plan to retire in 2050, the closer to the date you get, the more conservative it, it gets. So your money is preserved or protect it a little bit more, right? So again, you want to learn about this. There are many books. Cindy's book, obviously, I would recommend it. Get it. It's definitely a book that you could keep it forever and refer back to it time and time again. It can sound complex. And I think these the, this financial service industry does it on purpose for yes. us to, to hire their experts. But it, it's really, we've done hard things. This community yes. has done hard things, right? Yes. Our parents have crowned borders, have started from scratch. We have had to help our parents navigate a country. We had to learn new languages. We did, we done hard things. And this is yeah. just, it's much easier than that. Yeah. It's, it's much easier than coming to a new country yes. and trying to learn the language and the systems and the culture and everything. So we can do it. We can, we do, can it. do it. Yeah. So I know we only have a few minutes left and I want to see if anybody on the call has a question for Cindy. Feel free to help or raise your hand and I can unmute you. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Maybe not a question. Hi, just to say thanks, Cindy, for popping on. I'm a, I'm a bad club member and I haven't read it yet, but I just bought it. I'm very excited to read. So appreciate you joining. Thank you for your support. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. For sure. Do we have anybody else who wants to ask a question or has a comment? I have um, a question. My name is Cindy as well. Hello. Nice to meet hi, you. Hi. Nice to meet you. I, I guess. My biggest question is like, what do you think is the biggest like misconception among like our parents, maybe our communities about like money in the first place? Like aside from like, you know, that it's the root of all evil because, you know, yeah. religion has played a part. But like, yeah. what's something else that's maybe like at our fingertips that we're like not yeah. taking advantage of? Oh, I'll give you I'll give you an easy one. Um, and I'll, I'll explain why it's easy, because when I say it, you're going to be like, that doesn't sound so easy. Um, but it's such <laughs> an idea that we can only earn act, um, active income, right? So our whole lives, like our parents, they have taught us that you trade your time for money, 
right? You work at a job and you get paid for that job. That is active income. And that is certainly the way that most of us make our money for sure. But there is also passive income. There's the ability to earn money without having to trade your time for money. Well, then, Cindy, how do you accomplish that? You have to make your money work for you. So two simple ways that I want to offer to people to start getting into just thinking about doing one, the one that we just spoke about, right, which is investing. Investing is going to be the way to earn passive income, right? When your money starts appreciating in value. Now, is it always an appreciating value? No, the stock market is a roller coaster and you're just kind of here for the ride, right? But over the long term, historically, the stock market has performed upwards and that's what we go off of, right? So one obvious big one is investing. And so if you're investing, for example, through your workplace retirement, that's a fantastic way to get started with that. Another small, really simple way that I challenge all of you on this call to maybe just start doing even like today, tonight, is open up a high yield savings account, okay? Interest rates right now on high yield savings accounts are at like a high that we haven't seen since before the 2008 recession, right? We haven't seen these interest rates. There are banks that are offering 5%, 4% on just your savings, risk-free. So if you're really, really hesitant right now, I don't, I'm not saying that saving in a high yield savings account is a substitute for investing. It's absolutely not, right? We need to be investing. But for example, you want to keep your emergency fund or maybe some other savings that you have in a high yield savings it takes you like 10 minutes to open an account, literally. Some of my favorite banks are banks like Ally, Marcus by Goldman Sachs, CIT Bank, um, Barclays Bank. Those are just four banks for you to look into, okay? Very reputable. They're FDIC insured, so your money is going to be secure, right? We only want to bank with reputable institutions. And if you put your money in there, you're going to be earning interest on that money. Without having to lift a finger, you literally just have your money housed in this bank, right? So those are just two small ways that we can start thinking about um, passive income. And I think the reason why this is so powerful is because once you actually start seeing your money making money for you, it's a little addicting, right? And it's a little like, oh, like this is really cool. Maybe I can save like another $20, $200. $300, right? Like, like you get more excited about it. Um, so yes, and I would invite you to welcome the possibilities of passive income. And no, I'm not saying by just following some like TikTok guru that is going to try to teach you how to earn $1,000 of passive income in a day because sometimes those are a little sketchy. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right. So as we wrap up this call, Cindy, I want to thank you again. And I want to encourage everybody to to get the book and read the book. It's definitely something that you're going to treasure for a long time. You're going to learn and we learn as you read it. Cindy, what is next for you? (laughs) Um, So right now, honestly, just focusing on my digital course that I offer, on some digital classes that I'm going to be able to offer now that I have And also uh, the big one is my speaking work. You know, like I work with corporate clients, nonprofit clients, universities, uh, high schools to educate their communities on personal finance, right? This is something I'm really, really passionate about. And I think that people are starting to just become even that much more curious about these types of conversations and are seeking to bring in speakers that are not necessarily, you know, a white dude in a right, from a bank. Nothing wrong with the white dude in the suit from the bay, but maybe you want someone that can better connect with your employees on a different level or with your students, et cetera. You know, um, it's something that's really important to me. I see there in the chat, the digital course name and website. So it's the Blueprint to Financial Freedom is my signature group coaching program. It's a self-paced course with basically everything that you need to know about all things money. And it includes monthly group coaching with me. And uh, that you can get on my website at zero-spacebudget.com. And yeah, it's just, you know, it's really exciting stuff that we have coming up, uh, mainly about, you know, just really getting into the communities, right? And like really spreading this information, especially now that the book writing process is done, you know? (laughs) And yeah, I think we have another uh, another question. Yeah, Elias, you can unmute yourself and ask a question. Hey, hey, Natalie. Hi, Sydney. Hi. Um, 
thanks for all the awesome information that you just gave us right now. Um, Thank you. uh, I have a question. So on saving and purchasing a house, like what are some of your tips for that? I do feel like in the Latino community, uh, I'm second generation, uh, but like there is like a lot of pressure, like once you start like making like good money after college, like to make that step to like kind of, you know, to keep building. I think there is that pressure to like, you know, make that step and lead to buy a a purchase a home. I definitely felt that like, especially when interest rates were super low a couple of years ago and everyone was purchasing. I ended up not just because um, I was going to be spreading my, my, myself too thin financially. Mm, but again, I definitely felt the pressure where like I had cousins, I had primos, primas that were purchasing yeah. stuff. So it's like, oh, wow, maybe I should too. But then it's like, okay, let me not. But yeah. So what are your tips yeah, like, for absolutely. balancing that so pressure? Give, and that, That's a great question. And I'll give you three points, right? Number one, you need to educate yourself on home ownership generally, right? Like what kinds of loans are available to you, right? So for example, there's a, there's a VA loan if you're a veteran, there's a um, SHA loan if you're a first time home buyer, right? What are the types of loans that would be available to you? How do those loans work, right? Like that's something really important that sometimes we we don't know the answer to. What's involved in the process of you know, owning a home. It's a pre-approval process, right? What kind of paperwork would you have to have ready for that? So before we even think about making that, you know, leap, right, from renter to homeowner, we need to really educate ourselves on home ownership generally, right? So that's like a, a first step that I encourage you to do. The federal government has a tons, tons of websites, um, uh, information on their website, like Department of Housing, et cetera, right? But we want to do... Uh, as much research as we possibly can, first and foremost. There's also a great program. Um, I do believe it's countrywide, but here in New York, we have it is NACA. So NACA is a great resource for first-time home buyers as well. N-A-C-A, I encourage you to look into it. Second thing I want you to look into are the numbers. Yes, we need to talk real numbers. Like how much of a home could you afford? Use a mortgage calculator that's gonna take into account not just the price of the home, People think that the mortgage just encompasses the price of the home. No, it doesn't. It might encompass also the um, the 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 homeowners association fee, right? Taxes. That's the big one, right? And then of course interest. And so you need to really run those numbers. Like if you think, oh well, I can afford this amount of a house, um, because all of the money is going to go to the principal, right, of paying off the house. No, it's not. Only a small portion of the money that you're paying towards your mortgage is actually going to the principal. We really need to have a firm understanding of everything that goes into the mortgage as well. So run your numbers using a mortgage calculator. They're free and readily available. So I encourage you to look into those resources as well. Um, And also the other costs associated with home ownership, like for example, inspection fees that, for example, the buyer may undertake, sometimes the seller undertakes it, it's very dependent. Um, Any specific requirements that your state may have, right? So home ownership, you know, that depends on property law. Property law is dependent to your specific state. They, there may be certain requirements or um, certificates that you may need to get. Uh, what kinds of fees will be associated with the transaction as well, right? Will you want to hire a lawyer to review your home ownership agreement, right? Like there's so many different things that you need to look on for yourself, right? For like your own numbers and your own home. Lastly, after you do that, right, after we're doing the external research about home ownership generally, then we're doing about our own numbers research, okay, then we start actually making money, right? We need to start saving up for the home. So how do we do that? I encourage you to have a home down payment sinking fund, okay? This is a separate saving, not mixed in with your emergency. No, this is separate, okay? That you're going to make a plan for to start saving on a monthly basis. This would be a great thing to put in your high yield savings account, right? So that it's paying you interest. It's kind of like tucked away, right? Um, Kind of like a little bit of out of sight, out of mind action. And just as an example, let's say your goal is to save right now. I'm just throwing a number out there. Let's say your goal is to save $24,000, right? And you want to buy a home in two years. You need to start saving $1,000 a month towards that goal, right? The $24,000 isn't just going to pop up overnight. So we need to start creating a plan 
to save towards that goal, right? So whatever number it may be versus the amount of time that you may have, divide that goal number by the number of months that you have. And that's the number that I want you to include in your monthly plan, in your monthly budget to include in a high yield savings account, all right? But that's a wonderful question. I think that more of us need to be very educated on the nuances with home ownership. It's a great thing, but something that has a lot of response. It carries a lot of responsibility and weight. And I just want us to make sure that we're making the best um, informed decisions as possible. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. I did share some links in on the chat. So I'll include all of that in the episode notes. And definitely if there, maybe this is an idea for the next episode about talking about home ownership. Yeah, yeah, it's a big topic. It is a big topic. And Cindy, you definitely succinctly gave us all those three tips of how to think about. And and just to kind of put it out there too, there is a lot of pressure in the Latinx community to own homes. There are also benefits to being a renter. So don't discard the benefits of being a renter as well. So I'm still a renter. (laughs) There are benefits to both, right? Cindy, I don't want to take more of your time. I do appreciate it. I appreciate everybody who joined the call and asked questions. Again, this is a topic in our community that we need to keep talking, need to be transparent about our own experiences. And again, Cindy, I thank you so much for writing this book. Again, it feels like I, you know, kind of want to read this when I was back in my 20s, but it's never too late to learn. I really appreciate the message that you send about always being a lifelong learner and yes. and just being transparent about our money situation, our money lessons. So thank you so much, Cindy. Yeah, thank you, Natalie. I really appreciate it. Thank you, thank- everyone. Are you a small business looking to expand your digital footprint? Are you a small business looking to reach more of the Peruvian diaspora in the United States? Consider sponsoring an episode of Peruvians of USA. Peruvians of USA has launched its first sponsorship program. If you're interested, please visit peruviansofusa.com slash sponsors or send us a message on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right. Talk to you soon. Ciao.